ask you if you will to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be looking this morning at verses 5 through 11. It's been three weeks since I've been able to stand here in the pulpit, so I'm thankful to be back together. I got over the nerves in the first service and second service, so I'm ready. Really thankful for Pastor Nathan who tied up there Acts chapter 18 and prepared us to move into the the final part of Acts in next year. Excited about that. Really thankful for last week and and Pastor Kevin and his team leading us and and being able to worship in our time together through our Christmas celebration and worship and was truly blessed by that. Today, we'll move into our Christmas series, if you will. It's been common practice for us that through this time of the year, we reflect especially upon what it means that Christ Jesus came for us. Over the last couple years, we have looked at those traditional passages, especially the ones that are more familiar to us, like Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Matthew's gospel pointing to the prophets and how Jesus came to fulfill the promises of the prophets and what they said. And Luke's gospel giving us that more narrative uh, point of view, especially when it mentions the shepherds and the wise men and others, and we, we see those passages there. Now we move into Paul's letters. And in Paul's letters, we have uh, not so much a focus on the narrative of the coming of Christ, but more of the reason why he came, maybe the, the theology behind his coming even, as Paul is explaining those things to us for a purpose. And so as we come to Philippians chapter 2, you know, it's our general and normal practice here to preach through a book of the Bible. And so you kind of keep the context going as you move along. I don't want to just parachute in here to Philippians and assume that you don't understand or don't remember the context. Let me just kind of put us there for a moment if you allow it. Remember, the book of Philippians is the epistle of joy. It's, it's joy that Paul is talking about over and over again. Rejoice, joy. He speaks of that more in this epistle than any other by far. And we can remember the context of the book of Philippians or the church at Philippi by going through Acts together. You remember it was there that he found Lydia down by a river, uh, a seller of purple goods, a strong businesswoman. It was there that he had the young girl who had a spirit of divination, a demon spirit within her that he cast out and, and called her to faith and she followed. It was there that Paul was put in prison, beaten, put in prison, and the Philippian jailer was converted. Him and his whole household as God performed a miracle of, uh, uh, in that conversion as well. And that Philippian church was one of a group of people from Lydia to the, to the young girl to the Philippian jailer that probably would never come together in life, but God through his son Christ Jesus and the work that he is doing through redeeming his people have brought them together as a church. And so Paul is writing to them in joy of what God has done and reminding them of where their joy is found. For Paul, joy is found in knowing Jesus and living for Jesus. In, in other words, it's not found in the circumstances of your life. He even says toward the end, I'm, I've learned what it means to have a lot and I've learned what it means to have a little. I, I've had want and I've had plenty. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is saying in Philippians that it's not our outward circumstances at all that determine our joy. It is knowing Jesus and following him. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Knowing Jesus and following him is the joy that we long for. 
And not only is that, when we know that joy, when we find that joy, we then respond to what God has done in Christ by living out a godly humility, a godly humility. These two things are countercultural in our day and age, right? Our joy is not found in our circumstances. And when we know that knowing Jesus and following him, we have a godly humility, humility, joy, not in circumstances. These are things that are, are not common in our day and age. Well, this was countercultural in this day and age as well as Paul's writing to the church. And so here he's letting them know of where their joy is found and what their response should be. And when he says that a godly humility should be our response to what Christ Jesus has done for us, he gives an example of that godly humility, and that example is Jesus himself, especially in Jesus' coming to us. We see the example of humility. Whenever St. Augustine was commenting on this passage about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, knowing Jesus and following Jesus. He simply said, here are the principles of knowing Jesus and following Jesus. First, you must have humility. Second, you must have humility. Third, you must have humility. He's making the point here that, that the response to knowing Jesus and following him in the Christian life is baseline is to live humbly, just as Christ has come for us humbly. So these verses... Philippians 2, 5 through 11 constitute one of the great New Testament passages of the person and work of Christ and become an example for us. And so this morning, as we think about why Jesus came or how Jesus came, I want us to look at these verses and see and understand that. Starting in chapter 2, verse 5, I'll read through verse 11. Follow along with me there, if you will. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus, the one who has come for us, who humbled himself so that he may redeem us. We thank you for his humility in coming, God. We thank you for his humility in living the perfect life for us. We thank you for the cross, Father. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, our salvation has been sealed, complete. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would help each and every one of us to submit our lives to him and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. All for your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. The first thing I want us to notice in this passage about the coming of Jesus is the heights from which Jesus came. Notice the heights from which Jesus came. Paul has a simple verse here in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, though he was in the form of God, the story for Paul begins far in the eternity past. 
Paul is not just saying that Christ began here at this moment of his coming. Paul is letting us know that that beyond our finite imaginations can help us, we are looking into the far reaches of all eternity, and we recognize that there was never a time when Jesus was not. He is eternal. He is always existed. He has always been there. He is in eternity past. And so wrapping our heads around this becomes difficult for us, but we understand that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who existed eternally with God. In fact, if I can, just flip over with me to John chapter 1, and we'll see a a beautiful stretch of the theology of who Christ is. Pastor Nathan mentioned this two weeks ago. When people say, don't give me theology, just give me Jesus, they're saying a statement that makes zero sense. In order to understand who Jesus is, we must understand theology. And so here we understand it in this passage in John chapter 1. It says clearly, in the beginning was the Word. And now let's just make this clear as well. Look down at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Notice what he's saying about Jesus here. Jesus was with God in the beginning. As far back as we can think, as far back as we would go, Jesus was with God. He was the Word, and he was God. And so ultimately it says, even now, only that, Jesus created all things. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus reigned in heaven as the acknowledged equal with the Father. As creator, he had all the powers of nature under his control. Everything that happens, happens because Jesus commanded it or made it happen. In fact, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, by his very word, Christ Jesus holds all things together. He holds all things together. So Jesus is the one who has stated and proclaimed and and created as as colossians says all things are from him through him and to him everything finds its definition in jesus christ himself he is the creator over all things he is god in fact the scriptures make this clear the scriptures make this clear even even as we walk through it and we understand that jesus didn't just appear in that manger for the first time we have seen him before though veiled in some way we have still seen him even in the old testament as we've been walking through the old testament on wednesdays we 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 start to see those appearances come up it was jesus who ate with abraham underneath the trees in mamre it was jesus who wrestled with jacob there into submission it was jesus who was the warrior that met with joshua outside the walls of jericho and gave him the commands it was jesus who was the fourth one in the fire with those three youths in babylon It's Jesus who has always been there for his people and with his people. And all of nature is held together by his word of power. He is eternally God. In fact, it tells us here that Paul is trying to get to this point that this is why we say he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He possessed all the divine perfections of God alone, all the divine power 
of deity himself. He was co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. And Jesus never, never denied or hesitated in making this claim, even in his teaching in the Gospels. I and the Father are one. Jesus, as truly God, with all his deity, reigned in heaven with God forever. That's where he came from. In fact, even if you think about this, we, we hear those stories all the time. We hear those stories all the time of people who have, who have started out in, in poverty or in low places in life and raised up to do something great, and, and we see what they've done great, and then we hear the backstory. If you only know where they came from, how much more incredible is it? What Paul is doing here is letting us know that if you only know where Jesus came from, how incredible is it that he came? Because in this way, it's not that he's being raised up from poverty. It's that he was in riches of heaven. He had all the power that belonged to him of deity. He possessed it all, yet he came to us. If you only know where he came from, you would see and understand how great he is. That's Paul's point. The heights from which he came. But then we see the second thing here. Not only the heights from which he came, the depths to which he came to. The depths to which he came to. I love the song we sang today, all of them, they were great, uh, but about midway through the week, I went to Scott, Kevin, I said, can we sing Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery again? Now, whenever I come to them late in the week and try to change a the song, they love it when I do that. <laughs> but in this way, I was thinking about this last week, even as I was watching, as we sang this last week with the choir and worshiping together this beautiful mystery. Now that song is about the mystery of God being fully God and being fully man of Christ coming to us. And that first verse I think is, is a great verse for Christmas itself. Listen, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praise is robed in frail humanity. In our longings, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended took on flesh to ransom us. What an incredible statement about Christmas itself. He says, look to Christ who condescended. Now, to condescend is a word that nowadays carries a negative tone pretty much all the time. In fact, if you look it up online, if you use the, the, the dictionary there, really all three of those first definitions are kind of negative in its connotation, but that's not what it's meant here. It's meant here as something different. Here, condescend, it speaks of something uh, of relationship. In other words, it speaks of a relationship of one who is superior, who waives the privileges of rank to come down and do the work of those below him. It speaks of condescending, one who is superior, waves that rank to come down and do the work that's beneath him. Think of a, a general who comes down to do the work of a private, ray, uh, waves the rank and privileges of general to do the work of a private. Or in our passage, think of a king who comes to do the work of a servant. This becomes the very point. That's why the word condescended is right here. He is waving the privileges of what is superior to come down to do the work of what is beneath or below. Paul is making the point to look at where he came from to what he came to. Our king became a servant. In other words, Jesus did not cling to the full exercise of the prerogatives of his deity. He did not cling to the full exercise of the prerogatives of his deity. In fact, it said he did not consider these as something to be grasped. In other words, he let go of them. 
He didn't hold fast to them. He let go. He doesn't hold on to them. He releases the prerogatives of his deity so that he may take on flesh. Now, Jesus emptying himself here is not Jesus emptying himself of his eternal deity. He does not diminish his deity. He takes on flesh. And when he takes on human flesh, he never becomes less than fully God. But what Paul is addressing is he's laying aside his prerogatives as God to take on the limitations of humanity. He voluntarily surrendered every advantage as God to become a servant so he may redeem his people. That's what he's mentioning. He doesn't hold fast to it. He lets go of it. And he takes on flesh while surrendering every advantage as an infinite God. He, at that time, assumed all the limitations of finite humanity. He remains fully and truly God. And he also, at the same time, becomes fully and truly man. Come behold this wondrous mystery. Sure, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around this, but this is the very incarnation and the teaching of Paul. Fully God and fully man at the same time. He took on flesh. Incarnation means simply that. He took on flesh. And Christ's humility or condescending is seen in that he was the king and creator of the universe. And he became a servant. He became a servant. Paul is laying it out here as this is the one whose humility for us becomes our example. The humility of Christ was seen in his very coming. I mean, think of the scene itself, born in a manger to, to a young girl who was, who was a virgin and to a, to a guy named Joseph who was betrothed to be married to this girl, was ready to put her away because now she's, she's pregnant and, and, and it's not his. And so he has to be told by an angel, no, it's okay, still marry her. So he humbles himself to marry Mary and they go off to Bethlehem and there they can't find a place to even, to even stay for the night. So they have to lay this baby in a manger and wrap him up in some swaddling cloths and lay him there. Even the scene around the birth of Christ is one of humility. Is one of humility. Jesus' birth, his life, and his death signify what Paul means when he says he became a servant. And in fact, his death becomes for Paul the very climax of his giving and his humiliation. For he says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The author John Donne writes, the whole of Christ's life was a continual passion. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. He found a Golgotha where he was crucified, even in Bethlehem where he was born. For to his tenderness then, the, the straws were almost as sharp as the thorns after, and the manger as uneasy at first as the cross at last. His birth and his death were but one continual act, and his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but the evening and the morning of the one and the same day. As Paul says, look to this one who died for us, even on a cross, the most humiliating of deaths. We look to him, what we understand is that Christ's death began even in his condescending and coming to us as a baby. He was born to die. It's the very reason why he came. 
The humility and humiliation of Christ, as we see, was seen in his coming to us. Paul makes this point. As he's saying, look, true joy is found in knowing Jesus and following him. And when you know Jesus and follow him, then you live a life of humility. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to earth. Jesus surrendered the privileges of deity to take on the limitations of humanity. Jesus did all of this so that he might fulfill the promise that was spoken by the angel to Joseph himself. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Paul takes us to the cross to show why Jesus came. The clearest expression of the humility of Christ. What I can say with full confidence this morning, without any hesitation or reservation, that no human being that's ever lived, not in any corner of this world, not at any time period of this place, not any man, not any female, no human being that's ever lived has ever humbled themselves as much as Christ Jesus has humbled himself. You can't find them anywhere. For Christ Jesus, fully God, took on flesh and descended to the depths even of a servant so that he may redeem his people. If you only knew where he came from, you would understand what it means for us, Paul says. After the humiliation of Christ, of course, for Paul, you have verse 9, this therefore, he humbled himself, took on flesh, even became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Not only do we understand the heights from which he came, the depths to which he came to, we also see the heights to which he will reign from. Here he says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Matching the depths to which he came to, we see the exaltation of Christ to where he will be placed. In other words, it says he is highly exalted. It wasn't good enough for Paul just simply to say he will be exalted. He will be highly exalted. He is seated on the throne. There is no other one like him. There is no throne that is higher. There is no name that is greater. He is the one who rules and reigns, and his kingdom cannot be divided. His kingdom will never be taken away from him. No one can stand against him, for he will reign forever and ever and ever. Ever, on the throne we consider that's what Paul's point is and what does that mean it gives us verse 10 so that this is in the the Greek a henna clause because it begins with the word henna and henna means purpose reason he's done all of this he humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus came to the depths of creation to secure salvation for everyone who believes in him. And he sits on the throne where everyone will bow to him. You see, here it says, every knee will bow an act of submission, of worship. Here it says, every tongue will confess. In fact, it even gives this, this statement in here, in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. If you look through the scriptures, that, that phrase is used over and over again to speak of all creation. 
the three levels, if you will, in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. He's speaking of an entirety of creation. Everybody, everything will bow to Christ. Everyone will confess he is Lord. Just as I said last week in speaking during our, our time of our worship celebration with our choir, you need to understand that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king, not whether you recognize him as that or not. He is Lord and he is king because he is the one who has been highly exalted by God himself and placed on the throne. So the idea of us making him king or Lord is not really true. What we do is we recognize him as king or Lord. And that's what matters for us today. Has your knee bowed to recognize him as king? Do you confess today that Jesus Christ is Lord? You see, he's the one who condescended, who left heaven, who came and died for us, even to the depths of a cross. He's the one who rose again and now is seated at the right hand of God, and now everyone will bow their knee, and everyone will confess. The question for each and every one of us is, when? Will you recognize him as Lord and Savior by worshiping him and confessing him today? Worshiping him and submitting your life to him as, as King and Lord today? Confessing him as Lord today? For if it's not now, then maybe you will bow your knee and confess him when it's too late. Either way, there's no getting around it. Jesus Christ is King and Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The great gift of the gospel, the good news is God is making Christ Jesus available to you today. Worship him and honor him. Confess him. A few thoughts here then. Thoughts on Christmas and I close with this. First, Know and see, recognize, understand the great love with which God loves you. Christmas is a testimony to that. He sent his son who condescended, who, who came in humility, who left the thrones and the glories of heaven to come to this place to take on the limitations of flesh. Jesus let go of the prerogatives of deity so that he may take on the limitations of humanity so that he may redeem us and save us from our sins. That is love. In fact, no greater love has anyone than this, than he would lay down his life for us. That is love. And my friends, he did that, knowing you better than you even know yourself. He did that knowing all of your faults, knowing all of your weaknesses, knowing all of your rebellion even from him. He came for you while you were still a sinner. He came for you while you were yet ungodly. He came for you. And there's no greater love than this. There's no greater love. Don't overlook that. Surely we want to be loved, right? Even when we don't feel like it. Surely this is what we desire. 
And maybe people in our life have heard us and turned their back on us and we feel like nobody loves us. Well, my friend, I'm here to tell you today that I'm not really concerned right now about your feelings. What I want you to know is the fact that Jesus Christ has demonstrated his love for you in that he pursued you and came after you. Trust in the promises of God. Trust in the promises of God that have been fulfilled in Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, it is not possible that all the condescension of all the kind and compassionate men who have ever lived should be more than a small grain that could not turn the scale compared to the everlasting hills of the Savior's wondrous love. You take all the kind acts, you take all the good things that people have ever done, it is nothing compared to it. It's like a small little grain compared to the hills of the love of Christ. It cannot even move the scales. Christ loves you. And his coming for you is a testimony to that. His coming to you is also an example. Paul sets him out as an example. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. How are we to live? Look at Christ. Look at how he lived. We recognize that everything we have has been given to us, including our Savior who came. We've received him as the greatest gift we could ever know. We recognize that our life, our breath, our heartbeat, these are all gifts from him, for he holds us by the word of his power. We recognize that there's not one thing that we have that we can claim that we've earned in our own strength, in our own might. Christ Jesus has bestowed upon us all the gifts of heaven, so we don't hold on to those as if we have earned those and they are ours. He gives them to us so we may let go of them so that others may know that's why Augustine said humility 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 we live as believers knowing that God has bestowed upon us all the riches not so they end with us but they flow through us so Paul says have that same mind in yourself and there's no better time than Christmas to recommit ourselves to living humbly before others what does he say right before this? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There's no better time than Christmas than to fulfill that. And who is our example but Jesus himself? Recommit yourself to live this way. And third, just what we spoke before. Submit your life to Christ Jesus. And confess him as Lord. Know him and live for him. And there you have joy. In fact, I stand here today betting my own life on this fact. That when you know Christ and you submit to him as Lord and Savior, you will find all you have ever longed for. Jesus is enough. Now is that time of commitment for us. What is it that the Lord is calling you to do? Look to Christ, who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. For your name and for your glory we live. And to anyone who is here today, God, may you work and may you move even in our midst, even in their hearts. May every person in here 
bow their knee to a king who loves them. May every person in here confess Jesus as Lord and follow him. Father, may we live humbly as Christ has lived. Consider where he has come from and what he has come for. Deepen our love for Christ as he has so greatly loved us. There's decisions that need to be made in this room, God, and you know what they are. You know every heart. Draw every one of us to yourself. Call us to do what you would have us to do, to know Jesus and bow to him, to confess Jesus and follow him, and to live humbly before others. May we commit ourselves to these truths in this season for your glory and for your name. Let's stand together and sing.